Thanks for tuning into Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garter McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Today, we're going to hear the latest about COVID-19 and the Delta variant from the Blue Ridge Health District. They recently held a town hall to discuss vaccination rates, vaccination locations, and what back to school might look like. They also reviewed the new CDC guidelines, which were updated after the highly contagious Delta variant became the dominant strain circulating in the United States. And stay tuned in the second half of the show for a conversation looking back on August 11th and 12th and what the ripple effects have been over the past four years. For our first segment, I'm going to hand things over to our assistant producer, Karen Kern. With the increased number of vaccinated people and the loosening of mask mandates and other restrictions, it may seem like the COVID-19 pandemic is nearing its end. And after a year of staying inside and quarantining, people are more than ready for things to go back to normal. However, the pandemic is far from over, as shown by rising case numbers and decreased vaccination rates. Virginia is no exception, and although more than 50% of the population is vaccinated, cases are continuing to rise, and with the increased cases, comes an increased uncertainty as to what the near future holds. The Blue Ridge Health District hosted a virtual town hall on August 5th to give updates on vaccination efforts, back-to-school plans, and CDC guidelines, which have changed due to the presence of the highly contagious Delta variant. The panel included doctors Denise Bonds, Paige Perriello, and Jeffrey Vergalis, as well as vaccination project manager Jen Fleischer and public information officer Jason Elliott. Vaccinations are still a major priority in Charlottesville, and the BRHD emphasized the importance of being protected against COVID-19, as well as getting tested if you're unvaccinated or think you may have been exposed. Uh, The math on this works out to about 61.8% of the Blue Ridge Health District having at least one dose, and we're sitting now at 56.5% of our Blue Ridge Health District uh, being fully vaccinated. We do continue to host uh, vaccination events throughout the community. Um, So for vaccines here in the Blue Ridge Health District, there are a number of ways that individuals can access vaccines. Um, So we do have our J.Crew fixed site. This is on 29 North uh, at the Fashion Square location. And we are operating four days a week there, which include daytime and evening hours. Uh, In addition to that fixed site, All of our local health departments are now offering vaccines one day a week at each location. Uh, And the hours and times for both the J.Crew and local health department vaccine sites are on our website. Um, We have our shot on the spot events, which you've probably seen some flyers going around. And this is what we're really excited about because it takes our vaccines from a clinic and into the community. In addition to our community efforts through our mobile vaccines, uh, we also are still partnering with UVA Health and the Charlottesville Fire Department to provide homebound vaccines for individuals who are unable to leave their home or access one of our community or fixed sites. Kind of hand in hand with vaccine these days, uh, particularly as we see our case count uh, increasing here in the Blue Ridge Health District, is the importance of testing. Uh, And we do want to remind everyone that testing is still widely available throughout the health district. Each and every Monday, our our partners over at UVA are hosting uh, free testing at the Church of Incarnation. And on Tuesday nights, they'll also be at the Mount Zion First African Baptist Church in Charlottesville. Um, Every Friday, we are hosting uh, a testing event at the Charlottesville Albemarle Health Department. 
And as we are moving forward, we're also increasing those efforts to be um, on a regular routine throughout the rest of the district offering free testing as well. You can also sign up to become a Blue Ridge Health District vaccine ambassador by signing up through the Virginia Department of Health website. I would love to encourage every single person who's gotten a vaccine, particularly those who were hesitant before they got the vaccine, to be a vaccine ambassador. Um, We know that one of the best things that can happen for people is to have um, conversations with people they trust. Um, It can be really helpful to hear from people who are hesitant themselves um, because it it feels really scary to a lot of people. And so we really need to meet them where they are. And the health district has done an amazing job of physically meeting people where they are in all the places they might need to get a vaccine. But we have conversations in our office every day about the vaccine and we're fortunate enough to give it in our office to parents and kids. And um, I hear a wide range of very real concerns that people have. And so finding out what the hesitation is instead of putting everybody into the same box is really helpful. And so in your communities, in your friend groups, in your school groups, in your parent groups, in your neighborhood, wherever you go, um, talking to people about whether they've gotten the vaccine and why you think it's important can make a really big difference. The BRHD says that the only way we can truly end the pandemic is through mass immunity, which can be achieved through vaccinations. The goal, they say, is not to make the virus disappear, but to control its spread so that it's no longer such a threat. One of the messages that's been lost throughout all of this is that I is that we can make this thing go away. And I think the the hard part for people to wrap their head around is that even in you know the hundreds of years that we've understood viruses, maybe a hundred years or so, you know, we've it's been uncommon outside of smallpox that we've ever really made a virus go away. And so our pursuit always has to be, how do we control spread if this thing is going to be with us for a long time? And the word we use in circles is whether it becomes something called endemic, just like influenza is endemic every year within us. And the only way we've been able to ever do that is through immunity. You know, masks work really well and social distancing works really well for us to be able to control spread. But if you look at every major outbreak, the way that we deal with it is through immunity. And vaccines are a great way to provide immunity. Um, Getting it is also a great way to provide immunity, but we don't want that. You know, we don't want people to get it. We want people to be able to understand that uh, that immunity is the only way that this thing is going to go away. Uh, And enough people have to be immune for all of uh, for all the vaccines to be able to work and for this disease to become endemic. And that's a hard thing, I think, for people to kind of wrap their head around. They also emphasize that getting the vaccine doesn't just protect you from a sickness that lasts two weeks, but from side effects that could potentially last a lifetime. The phenomenon of what is known as long-haul COVID can leave a COVID survivor with long-term fatigue, cognitive and memory problems, breathing problems, heart problems, and more. I think one of the things that we need to remember about COVID is that we actually don't know what happens in the long term. This is a brand new virus, and it's really only been around um, for 18 plus months. And so um, we don't know what's going to happen in five years from now uh, that someone may have had a very mild case. And we already see this a little bit with long haul um, COVID. And so I, I think that's another thing to think about. We have this great effective vaccine that's really proven to have um, relatively mild side effects be very effective. 
to combat a virus that we just don't have a lot of information about. Now let's talk about the updated CDC guidelines. The Delta variant now accounts for around 83% of all U.S. cases. It's 40 to 60% more contagious than the original COVID strain, and it's also the dominant strain circulating in Virginia. So the CDC, in response to the Delta variant, has changed its guidelines, and the Blue Ridge Health District is strongly encouraging all Charlottesville businesses, schools, and residents to follow them. COVID is a virus that can uh, change uh, as it moves from person to person, and we call that mutation. Uh, And in this situation, um, we've developed one called Delta uh, that does seem to be pretty transmissible. Uh, And importantly, uh, if you're vaccinated, the vaccine is working. It's keeping you out of the hospital uh, and lowering your symptoms. Um, But we have found uh, through studies that if you're vaccinated and infected with the Delta variant, that you are capable of spreading that virus to other individuals. And that's really been driving the change in the guidance that we see both the CDC and locally. So what the CDC has now recommended is that if you are in an area that's having substantial or high transmission, the recommendations are that when you go inside to a public setting, that you put a mask on, whether you're vaccinated or not. Certainly anyone who is unvaccinated or if you have a medical condition that puts you at high risk uh, because you're immunocompromised or perhaps because you have lots of medical issues uh, that if you did get uh, sick um, might be problematic for you, um, that in these circumstances, the CDC uh, and Blue Ridge Health District would also recommend that you wear a mask inside. I'm gonna add here too, that if you are uh, living with someone who fits that definition or are a caregiver for someone who fits that definition, then you probably should also wear a mask because you could become infected with this Delta variant, not know that you are sick and then spread it to the loved one that you're caring for that perhaps has an immunocompromised uh, condition or you have a child that's under the age of 12 and is just not eligible for a vaccine. If you are vaccinated and you are know you have an exposure to someone who had a diagnosed case of COVID, the recommendations are that you get tested three to five days after that exposure and that you wear a mask while you're out in public for 14 days or until you have that negative test result. And again, that's because we know with the Delta variant that you can become infected, have very mild or no symptoms if you're vaccinated, but still be capable of shedding that virus to other individuals uh, around you. And, you know, I think we all have loved ones um, that really just can't afford to be sick with this virus. And then the CDC um, did recommend that for all school-age kids, there be universal indoor masking, regardless of vaccination status. Uh, And So I I think you'll see that many of our schools have adopted that as well. Back to school has been a somewhat controversial topic, with many parents expressing concern with in-person learning, especially with children under 12 who are too young to be vaccinated. However, the Blue Ridge Health District says that as long as schools follow an indoor mask mandate, it should be safe for kids to get back in the classroom. Yeah, we have loads of data now coming in from the pandemic of the last year that mitigation strategies in schools work. 
Uh, and that not only do they work, but schools were not the mass spreader events that uh, your house would be, that family gatherings would be, that other things like that otherwise exist. And it's why we as a kind of a community health organization and pediatricians and whatnot have strongly recommended adhering to the CDC guidelines uh, of universal masking in schools, at least to start, at least that's as we're getting into schools right now, uh, with the clear reason that we know the mitigation strategies work, the CDC allows us to be able to do that and keep kids in school as much as humanly possible, which is the most important goal that we're otherwise doing. Another issue that parents brought up is what if school districts do not enforce a mask mandate because they have a choice as to whether or not they want to do that? which is a very valid concern because this is something that not only affects the children, but their teachers, parents, and surrounding community. And speaking of schools, as of August 6th, UVA has implemented a temporary indoor masking policy for vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. Social distancing requirements and gathering limits are no longer enforced, however, and UVA is still planning on operating at full capacity and will not be canceling or altering any major events. They plan to reevaluate and potentially lift the mandate on September 6th. Well, those were the COVID updates from the August 5th town hall hosted by the Blue Ridge Health District. The Delta variant is certainly making things a bit more complicated, but hopefully people will continue to get vaccinated and tested and adhere to CDC guidelines so that we can all get back to normal as soon as possible. The BRHD encourages anyone with COVID-related questions to call their hotline at 434-972-6261. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures, and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. In our next segment, Nathan Moore sat down with Emily Gorsinski. She's a journalist who covered the trials of white supremacists that followed the events of 2017. So, Emily, it's been four years since the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, which left three people dead, dozens of people badly injured. What did that incident show us about American politics? I think when we look back at what has happened in American politics over the past, say, 10 years, I think we will eventually recognize Charlottesville and Unite the Right as one of the more important events in American politics, because it represented a turning point. Um, It represented a turning point in our relationship with um, this idea that democracy is something that is participated in by people who are acting in good faith and by people who are, have the best interests of, of American uh, ideals and, and the American people in their heart. And I think what, what happened in Charlottesville um, four years ago really took the shine off of that for a lot of people. I think a lot of people woke up and they said, wait a second, political violence is happening here at home and it's, it's happening in ways that I can't ignore it. It's happening in the same ways that we thought were distant history, you know, the, the same sorts of imagery from Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Um, And then we also saw 
you know, with the president's comments about very fine people on both sides, this breach in, in the sort of sacred decorum of, you know, when bad things happen, we're supposed to unify as a people. We're supposed to say the right things on Monday night football pregame shows and, and all of those things. And, and that didn't happen. So I think that it represented this turning point where we can no longer rely on civility as a mediating factor in our politics. Um, and when we look at, say, Joe Biden's campaign, he launched his presidential campaign with the words Charlottesville, Virginia. Those were literally the, two, the first two words that he uttered in his, in his bid to uh, eventually become president of the United States. So I think that Charlottesville represented a turning point um, in a lot of ways in things that were much, much bigger than what what the actual event was about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Ostensibly, it was, what, a protest about statues, but it, it feels like it was about, you know, what does liberal democracy actually mean? And can we make it work? You know? I, I, it, it very much very much became that, you know, it was, it was about statues, but it wasn't about statues, right? It was about the, um, the right for white supremacy to assert itself through violence. That was what the organizers were looking for. That's what they came to do. And for the people who were opposing it, it was the right for communities to defend themselves without uh, the mediating factor and the monopoly and violence offered by the state. These are two very competing ideals and ideals that are actually critical to the the notion of democracy that we have. Um, It it very much goes in in line with many of the sort of ideological elements of of the founding of our country that, you know, people should be able to, um, on both both fronts, really, not to to both sides of it, but you know, the, our founding ideals as a country was one that people should be able to rise up against their government or act to defend, you know, their communities without um, needing the legitimacy of of the government. And also it was a um, country built on white supremacy. Um, and so it's kind of ironic that Charlottesville, the home of Thomas Jefferson, became this clash of of really two of Jefferson's very personal ideals. You know, while it wasn't just about the statues, statues were certainly part of it. Uh, in the years since then, um, monuments to Confederate generals and others have been taken down. Is is that the legacy of this incident? I don't think it's just about the statues. I think it's about the ability to reclaim public space. I think it's about the ability to recognize history and particularly American history and the American history of race and race relations as something that is ongoing, something that is participatory and something that is subject to change. Um, So I don't think it's just about the statutes. I think the legacy here is that um, as a people, as an American people, we are constantly rewriting um, or revisiting at least our relationships with structures of oppression, with the right to um, you know, what does the right to free speech actually mean? What does um, the right to self-determination actually mean? And I think that those things are, are healthy things for democracy. I think that they also can turn very dark and very ugly. The, you track the far right as, as a data scientist, one of the things you're best known for. The dark forces that we saw unleashed here in Charlottesville in August 2017, where are they today? 
most of them have become um, totally marginalized in every way. Um, many of the groups that came and organized and marched no longer exist in any meaningful form. Those, uh, those white nationalist groups have disbanded or um, become so uh, weakened through uh, arrests, through lawsuits, through infighting, through um, anti-fascist campaigns to expose people um, that they simply no longer exist and are no longer viable. Most of the leaders have, um, have pretty much vanished off of the face of the earth. In fact, some of them some of them have vanished so much, literally vanished off of the face of the earth, and they're wanted still on criminal charges in Albemarle County, Virginia. There's at least one person who's still wanted on criminal charges for the events of that weekend, and they can't find him. He's, he's completely gone. Um, he's still around. He's still posting online, but nobody knows where he actually is. So I think that um, their influence has, has waned dramatically. Um, at the same time, other forces have, have grown in their, um, in their wake. And there's a good argument to be had that the movement that came into Charlottesville was always a disposable movement that was really there just to, to achieve one kind of political goal. Um, and what is that and, goal? Well, that, that goal was to sort of move the, the Overton window, the sort of the no, renorming American society to be more rightwards. Right. And I think that they succeeded in that um, because now you have people like Newt Gingrich, a pretty mainstream Republican name. You know, I remember Newt Gingrich, you know, being a household name when I was when I was younger um, going on you know, Fox News and talking about great replacement theory, which is one of these white nationalist, deeply racist theories that actually inspired um, multiple mass shootings around the world, including the Christchurch shooting and the El Paso shooting. So these things have now become mainstream and the movement that came to Charlottesville, they were useful fools. They were there to, um, to sort of, you know, set the, set the boundaries of the new extreme. And then everything that we look at in the wake, we look at kind of compared to what's, what was happening in Charlottesville and we say, okay, well, it wasn't as bad as Charlottesville. So I guess it's okay. Right, right. They're not literally mowing people down with a car. Uh, this is just talk, right? Uh, and it's become, like you say, a, a mainstream part of Trumpism as as the sort of dominating force in the Republican Party. Uh, how, I mean, how much do you distinguish between the far right groups? And like you say, people like Richard Spencer are, are out of the picture these days. But how much can you distinguish between those groups and what they're about and the ones you track and, and that general Trumpism that's so prominent right now? I think there are there are differences, you know, in the politics of those groups. If you wanted to actually study the politics of those groups, actually, many of those guys are are not Trump fans. They are no longer Trump fans. Some of them were. Um, some of them felt betrayed that, um, you know, much like, you know, most mainstream progressives feel like Donald Trump betrayed the presidency. Um, many of them feel like Donald Trump betrayed them um, by by criticizing them in any way for for committing an act of terror, right? Um, which just goes to show how far off base they are. Um, but there are differences in their politics um, between sort of the mainstream MAGA, um, you know, ideology. I think that um, a lot of these groups really, you know, try to put political theory behind it. You know, when you look at the, these far right groups, you know, people like Richard Spencer, he's not an unintelligent person. He's an, he's an awful person. 
but he's not, he's well-read. He graduated the University of Virginia, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's part of why they came to Charlottesville. And it's part of why they came to Charlottesville, right? So these aren't, these aren't dumb people. These aren't people who, um, who don't have, you know, a way to think through politics. There are, though, political fights that are part of this. I mean, right now there's a gubernatorial election happening in Virginia with Democrat Terry McAuliffe, uh, sort of about as establishment as you can get on the Democratic side. And then Glenn Youngkin, um, who on paper looks like he would have been one of these kind of old school country club Republicans, rich guy with a finance background. But this year on the campaign trail, he's he's speaking to this far right base, uh, including these election conspiracy theories that have been promulgated since Trump's defeat last November. I mean, how much of that language and how much of that um, uh, sort of far-right ideology is just part of the picture these days? I think it's very much just part of the picture because it traffics well. Um, it's what gets clicks. It what get, it's what gets attention. It's what's driving the conversations in the after-church dinners and in the, you know, the Sundays in the golf course and at the Friday nights at the football games, right? Um, this is very much a part of um, the way that politics and media are being presented to people. And so what we see is a lot of Republicans latching on to Trumpism, even if they were not aligned politically with what Trump was doing, um, you know, politicians are going to ride the wave to power. And a lot of them are taking a gamble that Trumpism is not dead just because Donald Trump is no longer president. And they're going to use, in fact, some of them are even betting that Donald Trump's loss actually works in their favor because now they can paint themselves as a victim of a grand conspiracy and use that to try to mobilize people um, to become to further polarize um, our society, to create these rifts, and to use that to ride a wave into into um, into power. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's something to it, right? Uh, I'm remembering four years ago when Trump was elected. It- freaked the hell out of liberals and progressives. And there was an awful lot of activism and organizing and getting a lot of Democrats elected in the years that followed. Very much. I think that, um, you know, when you, when you take something from, for granted and it doesn't happen, um, I think that it, it motivates a lot of people to, in, uh, to taking action. And that's true for Republicans as it is true for, um, for Democrats and, and progressives and everyone else. Unfortunately, we have this very two-sided political viewpoint in America. We don't have really a, an effective multi-party system. And so it's kind of like you're either one or the other. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that it, there is a lot of, of validity to the, uh, to the theory behind the approach. I think the approach itself is reprehensible because, um, you know, it's, it's very anti-democratic to be suggesting that free and fair elections uh, or you know, the freest and fairest elections that we can put together as a country with all of the other social problems going on, that those are somehow um, illegitimate. I think that's that's a very dangerous place to be. You know, it's, it's not the first time our society has been this deeply divided, but um, it's been the worst it has been in quite some time, I would imagine. It, it's not healthy for democracy to to be completely unable to find compromise and to find... Um, to find common ground or to try to work through issues to, to actually want to solve problems. And I think that what's happened is we've lost, uh, we've lost a government that has any interest in actually solving problems. Um, we now have a government that is interested in pushing agendas. Um, and 
you know, I, I'm not even particularly a fan of the the Democrats approach because I think that they're being being pulled to the right by the sort of shift of the Overton window. And, and that is also not healthy for democracy. It's not just about what the politicians are campaigning on. It's not just about what they're saying. It also comes down to the choices that we're putting on voters. And if voters are always in a position of only ever having to to choose between what they think are the lesser of two evils, then voters are losing their power to assert their will through the through the electoral system to enact change. You know, I don't have a candidate that I can vote for that is going to push, you know, what I think is the economically viable solution, for example, to cancel student loan debt. I don't have a candidate that's that's representing that viewpoint. Um, and so when I look at the sum total of my values, I don't have anybody that I can vote for that represents those. I only can vote against somebody that is opposed to my existence as a queer trans woman and would love nothing else than to legislate out my right to exist as a, as a full human being in our society. Like that's a terrible choice. I think that that also is unhealthy for democracy. Yeah. If we could, if we could make things better for democracy in Virginia, uh, for countering the influence of, of the far right uh, in the state, what would you do? You know, I would um, put a lot more money into community involvement. Um, what we've seen in Charlottesville was that a lot of the, the motion that we have um, observed towards um, reclaiming our spaces, towards um, reshaping the narratives around race and around police violence and around um you know, incarceration and around the pandemic and all of these things, a lot of that is being driven by community groups. And if I would, you know, if I had my way, if I were the person in charge, you know, if Virginia was a, a temporary dictatorship with Emily Gorsensky as the benevolent dictator, I would be, you know, pushing this, this energy and these resources into establishing better community trusts and better community partnerships um, that put that power closer to the people and, um, letting them um, create the the, uh, the solutions to those problems in the way that they uh, they think that they should be solved, and to to have more experimentation, to have more um, uh, uh, participation and direct democracy at at you know local scales. I think for me, that notion of of community involvement is the missing piece in in our state politics. And really, state politics in almost every every state, but especially in Virginia, it just feels very detached from you know the local to the state level. It, it just feels very very distant. If you learned something from that interview, you should absolutely check out Bold Dominion. It's our sister podcast about what's going on in the state of Virginia. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producer this week is Karen Kern. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard.